Hi, and welcome to this special episode of Forest for the Future, where we're warming up to the FSC General Assembly taking place in Bali, Indonesia, on October 9th to 14th. This is the first episode of three, where we dive deeper into the theme of the FSC General Assembly, which is all about shaping solutions for resilient forests. Today, we will talk about scaling up forest-based solutions to climate change, biodiversity loss, and forest degradation. More specifically, I've invited a panel of guests to enlighten me on the role of climate investments as a tool to mitigate the multitude of challenges that we face. You will hear from four different voices in this podcast, each representing a link in an investment value chain from forest to market. I will let each of them introduce themselves as I invite them onto the podcast. But let's start by moving our way up through the value chain so that we can all understand just a little bit more. Juan, welcome to the podcast. You come from a company that's called Aroco. You also come from a company that's one of the main sponsors of the FSC General Assembly. So thank you for that. But we actually invited you onto this podcast because you represent a forest and a forest owner, and you're doing a lot on biodiversity preservation. Can you tell us a bit more about what it is that you're doing at Aroco and how FSC supports you in delivering on biodiversity? Yes, thank you for having me today and to be able to talk about these important issues, right? Biodiversity is a very important agenda in the world right now and, of course, for our company. So the first idea that I want to share is that we in Arauco feel a very hard responsibility in operating where we do because these are areas where there are hotspots of conservation of biodiversity in Chile, in Argentina, in Brazil, in Uruguay, our company owns places that have high endemism. That means that there are species there that only exist in those places and nowhere else in the planet. So many of those places are also pressured by, by human activity. So it's very important to have them in a protection areas. So the second idea that I want to share with you is how FSC has been able to promote the improvement of our scientific baseline. We started to have baseline information, but FSC is a system where you always want to get better. And in that sense, FSC pressures us to be better every time. So we have been able to develop high monitoring standards of these biodiversity areas, okay? So we are using bioacoustic records. We are using different camera traps, studies with environmental DNA, images that uses different spectrum from the light so we can differentiate different species in trees. So a lot of things, okay? And maybe the third idea that is also important is to tell you that we feel like a strong obligation, not only from a business ethics point, this is done also because we believe in what we call shared value. So as we harvest and produce wood and fiber for renewable resources, we also hope that this management of these biodiversity areas help us to find the right design of the implementation of these resilient landscapes. Because we harvest in these areas, but we also have protection areas. So the design of the landscape is very important. So it's not only done by a business ethic, in the core of our normal operation. And are you looking for investments for all of these activities? Because it doesn't sound like something that you would get cheap. 
We have been uh, for more than 20 years. We have uh, inside our company, we have a company that is called Bioforest. And this company is working with a lot of PhDs that we hire uh, inside our company to work in these areas. We see this not as spending money, but as an investment. Because when we do these things, we get better every time. We are more productive. We know what we have to protect. We know where we can have more intensive management. So it's not done really by spending money, but more as an investment. To do this, we also are looking, of course, at different money flows, okay? So the normal activity is to sell this, what we sell, the products, okay? But in the last years, we have been developing some interesting projects where we hope that these protection areas can also bring a money flow into the system. And that's probably something that we will be talking about in the General Assembly this year. So these projects are, are very innovative and we hope that, uh, that can help in this money stream flow to put more resources in research. It sounds like you're looking for companies to invest in you preserving biodiversity and to pay you for doing so. Exactly. There are mechanisms uh, that are placed today. We have been developing some projects of protection areas where we hope we get some bonds. So this money that we get from selling these bonds can be reinvested in these areas to be able to do more research and to have activities around these areas with communities, with the social part that actually help to protect them. Because there are many pressures of different activities, of human activities in these areas. And the only way to protect the areas is to have a social engagement with communities and with, uh, with other businesses to protect the landscape in the areas where we have no forest management and we, we would like them to stay as they are today. This is very interesting. Juan Carlos, I'd like to bring you in because as far as I understand, you re then represent the market side, the one that actually has funds then to invest in companies like Aroco and projects like the ones that Aroco are doing. Can you tell us a bit about your company and your role in the market? Yes. So the Sherwood Company, it's a project development and bayout company in the space of nature-based solutions. Project development meaning that we developed, we design, develop, but also operate these nature-based solutions projects. And what does mean? It's agroforestry with the small farmers, agroforestry with medium to large farmers, sustainable forest management, natural forest, meaning, you know, FSC certified concessions in, in the tropics that can be also operations of sustainable agriculture. And we mainly have two products from our projects, meaning the non-carbon products, timber and non-timber uh, products, and also CO2, carbon. We are also a bayout company, meaning that we also look for projects that are already undergoing that we will purchase and transform to do it more sustainably. Imagine a forest concession in a specific country that is not certified, that has been extracting maybe 25 cubic meters per hectare, which is still the law, but that where we can extract maybe four, right? And then complement those revenues from the avoided degradation of those forests. So we're kind of a technical company, but also financial company 
meaning that we are technical people, but we use the power of finance to also take cover on companies, to regroup and consolidate and to bring a new business model for, for these companies that are legacy companies for decades. So I think that the market is evolving, the practices are evolving, and we're bringing the CO2 component in order to finance and turbocharge our ability to, to do these takeovers and, and to implement uh, these operations more sustainably. We believe we have been created. So the Sherwood company, it's a call for the Sherwood forest somehow. We believe that in this environment of today, there's a lot of climate finance, at least in commitments or at least in pledges, which are not yet commitments, but need to be transformed in real action. But can you help me understand here? Because basically my level of knowledge on climate investment is not zero, but not a lot above zero either. Can you help me understand here? Your company, Dan, you raise the funds for investments and do the actual investments in projects that's already there? Or Correct. So we're investor operator. We are not an investment fund, meaning that the investment fund raise funds from institutional investors and then provide equity or debt into different companies, but they are company operators and they complement that. Our vision is more like a natural resource company, which could be a mining company, which could be an oil and gas company, but in the nature-based solution space, meaning that we will explore and then produce these nature-based solutions assets, which, you know, are timber, agroforestry products, and also carbon. So we are an operating company that will have a, a big financial bias, I would say. Mm-hmm. How big is this financial investment space and how important is it for forests that we have financial investment in forests worldwide? I think that the opportunity is huge. And these legacy assets, especially natural forests and plantations, are undervalued right now. And there's a big possibility to have, I hate this word cheap, but I would say that undervalued asset that you know, will increase in value in terms of the diversity they hold, in terms of the products they will produce, because we need to change our construction-based material that we have. We can use a lot more of timber, right? And maybe the rotations of the timber that was done to yesterday of seven years, maybe we need to put it on 20 years. But that's another industry, right? Other type of investments, other type of horizons. But we, our bet is that the world needs, needs new materials coming from timber for construction. The world needs natural forests and biodiversity. The world needs carbon. The world needs, you know, social impact because our democracies are in danger because of the inequality. You know, people want to turn down capitalism just because it doesn't work for everybody. But we can make it work for everybody, we believe, that showed. So instead of letting go the, the baby with the bucket water, we believe that there are possibilities for reforms at uh, the investment level. We can provide the, this kind of solution that we can use institutional investor capital to buy concessions, to buy plantations, transform models. And then maybe, you know, it's, it's a dream, but we believe that we have convinced investors to do so. And we believe that it's necessary. The technical capacity is there. The assets are there. The operators are there. Imagine Arauco. We believe that there's a big business opportunity and we're talking about billions of dollars of a market. Mm -hmm. Especially if all of those climate pledges actually end up in in actual money that's being invested. Correct. Ryan, you can connect the dots for me here, the completely newbie in climate investments, because then we have a forest owner and we have somebody who has some funding from donors. How do you then connect those two dots? What is the role of a company like South Pole in a process like this of actually making those 
investments end up in something? That's a really good question. And the company that I represent, South Pole, we're a climate solutions company. But more importantly, in this space, we're specialists in the design, the development and certification of carbon projects. And we've developed over a thousand emission reduction projects in over 50 countries globally, which makes South Pole one of the largest and most experienced in this very fast evolving space. So the way we work is that we have like a large team of experts in forest carbon quantification and emission reduction calculations. And we partner with forest managers and landowners uh, to get certified under the international carbon standards so that they can get a financial reward for implementing and transitioning towards sustainable forestry practice. And I don't need to spend time telling you why that's important. But As a carbon project developer, what we try to do is we try and remove the upfront barriers to our implementing partners. So from the likes of Shedwood and Oroco, for example, actually accessing carbon finance might be a challenge. So we step in to support that. And so we do this not just through providing our technical services, but also through taking a bit of risk and absorbing costs of not only our advice, but also through the costs associated with certification and third-party auditing so that these projects can get off the ground. And there can be a lot of work that goes into designing carbon projects and the development of that. And it often takes one to two years to get a project registered. And then the actual project lifetime can be up to 20 to 30 years. So these projects and these implementing partners need a partner who has aligned incentives and is in it for the long term with them. And through the partnerships that we create in our partnership model, we partner with these projects for the crediting life. So we're talking about long-term partnerships and we work under in a way where we only recover our costs and our upfront investment and the risk that we took when there's a successfully registered project that's issuing credits that return value. So we basically come in as partners to the project to make sure that it gets up and it's successful. Of course, there's a whole buying market out there for credits, which many people know about. And this is another space that South Pole also specializes in. So we support some of the largest corporates in the world along their climate journeys. And that begins at calculating their footprint, to setting targets, to implementing the strategies for how to get there, what's their risks, what's their opportunities with climate change, how do they implement interventions, and then how do they communicate their impact. And through this, there's a piece that often involves, through that whole journey, carbon credits have a role both in reaching short-term neutrality and also achieving what we call net zero, which is where you neutralise the residual emissions that you haven't been able to decrease through your own supply chains. And through these connections and through these relationships we have with corporates and the market presence that we have, we are very connected to this purchasing market and to some of the most ambitious players in the space that want to purchase from some of the best quality projects. So that's sort of how we connect the whole value chain of carbon. Mm. Can I add something sure. very short to that? Because we are partnering mm-hmm. with uh, South Pole specifically in Chile to develop an important project and a, a very boutique, I would say, project because as Rian w- was explaining, there is a standard, but you can add some values to that normal standard in terms of if the project has, for example, a link with the social part, with biodiversity, 
you can get like a, a, a project that has the VCS standard, but also another standards that come up to some additives and some very special extra values to the project. And those projects are more likely to be the better projects, which big companies or investment funds would like to buy. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's very important to have this knowledge where, for example, a company like Arauco, where we have really good research in biodiversity, because that research can get you to the point where you can monitor and bring extra value to the project that you are doing in the carbon space. And I always like to have people spell out. So when you say VCF standard, what, what does that mean? Because that's not necessarily a given that one knows that. That's the verified carbon standard. Okay, mm -hmm. so that's a, a standard that is known by calculations. You have to do the right calculations in order to be able to determine how much carbon you are not releasing to the atmosphere by protecting these areas. Okay, but again, you can have that baseline, do these calculations, but you have to do things that show that this is additional to protect what you're protecting, okay? And that brings you to the point where you can say, okay, this is valuable because you can sell this to the market because if there is no Arauco there, for example, or no, or no people protecting that land, that would be maybe destroyed and, and that carbon can go out to the atmosphere. That's the way it works in the market. And these extra values, the social part where you have people that are normally local people doing things to protect the land is very valuable too because they are also benefiting themselves by these activities. And is, is this something, this social aspect, is that something that's monetized as well, that, that companies, for example, the ones that you're talking about, Ryan, and that you're engaging with, is that something that they can choose to have as an add-on when they say, well, we want to reduce our carbon footprint, we want to buy carbon credits, but we actually want to do it with, for example, social aspects attached to it? Yeah, a lot of corporates come into the carbon world and leverage it to actually do a number of things. And some of those is to meet some of their like ESG goals. And mm -hmm. sometimes it's also to connect with their value chains and the communities that are in and around their value chains. And as a result, topics of like social resilience, improving biodiversity, other sort of co-benefits, like we have, you know, water and that sort of thing as well, that can be positive outcomes, especially from forestry projects. These sort of things become really important and they also give us additional metrics to ensure that we're designing holistically and sensible projects that aren't just focusing on a single outcome indicator of carbon because if you were going to do that, you'd go and plant monocultures of you know eucalyptus or something like that. So by actually having these co... We, we call, in the carbon market, we call them co-benefits, but I like to mm -hmm. remind people that operating in a local context that actually carbons the co-benefit and they're usually doing it for other reasons in the first place. But these co-benefits, by keeping them front and center, it reminds us when we're designing projects that A, we can get more value and it's a better result for the project, but B, we're also being sensitive to these other impacts that go alongside climate related KPIs, basically. 
Can I ask you a, a follow-up question? Because one of the things that I was thinking when you were giving your first answer was you're working with brands and you're working with them to identify, well, what is their footprint? And then they can buy credits. But do you have a requirement for them to actually also reduce their emission before you start working with them? That's a really good question. And it's almost a bit of a moral question. So I don't think it's worth us necessarily gatekeeping the start of someone's journey because to some corporates buying their first credits is the start of their journey. So we don't have that requirement as an obligation for them to be purchasing credits. But at the same time, what I will remind our audience is that by taking that first action in purchasing carbon credits, what a company has done is they have effectively set a price of a ton of carbon internally that becomes the price to beat by them putting interventions in their own value chain. So if they're paying $10 a tonne for a price of carbon, but through their own interventions to either you know look at renewable energy or to look at other sorts of value chain interventions, they can start to price out and prioritise the interventions that they want to make. And of course, as the price of carbon goes up in the market, that cost per tonne is only getting higher and higher. So it's putting more and more pressure on them to focus internally and reduce the absolute value of their emissions. So all in all, carbon credits, which I know have received a lot of controversy in the past, I think actually play a really important first step for corporates getting onto that climate journey. But it's an ongoing step as well. Like it's, it's a continued part of the strategy and it continues to drive finance to activities like sustainable forestry, like sustainable agriculture that wouldn't have otherwise had a revenue stream to make that transition because we're always being so focused on lowering commodity prices. So actually it's contributing to an ecosystem of ongoing transition and also causing companies to reflect internally at the same time. Mm. And can I just add a little thing to that? I understand that there's a first step, okay, that some companies may buy some carbon credits as a first step. But I think we have to push more than that. And there are mechanisms. For example, Loa was telling there are a number of commitments. For example, we have been measuring our footprint for many years. And we have established that because we work with trees, we are carbon neutral already. But that's not enough. So as a company, you have to commit to more than that. Okay. So there are, for example, the, the science-based targets initiative, where you can get into those standards and say, well, we want to reduce and we have a path and that's an ambitious path to going on that direction. So I think you have to complement. It's not only buying credits. It, it can be a way of getting yourself involved, but you have to go through your processes. You have to be ambitious and try to lower your footprint. That's the only way, I think, where you have this combination of methods, intelligence that you're putting into your value chain, where People also believe what you're trying to do. This is also something you are doing not only for getting along, but you are doing it because you're convinced that this is what the planet needs in the future. But what are you seeing on the ground, Rihanna? And what are you seeing in the brands? Are they looking for that reduction internally as well? Are they looking to actually make that reduction and lower their footprint in general? Or is that something that you have to inspire them to do? We meet companies at all stages of their 
climate journey, but it's becoming very, I mean, there's a lot of pressure from all angles, including their consumers, for them to take responsible and science-driven action. And so the Science-Based Target Initiative is a really good example of a evolving standard that continually updates to incorporate best practice to sort of set some parameters around what does a leading company look like and where do they need to look first? How do they reduce their scope one, two and three emissions? And how can carbon credits fit in there in a responsible way such that they're not the first thing that people go to grab? They're actually a solution to when you have done everything you can. We're seeing a lot of corporates increase their ambition, subscribe to those sorts of initiatives. Yeah, but at the same time, I think we're also seeing a lot of corporates getting really creative and trying to go above and beyond and trying to find an edge to raise that ambition as well. I I think it's a, a really evolving space. Carbon has had a lot of groundwork done. There's a lot of sort of accepted science around particularly sectors like forestry, which are historically one of the most well-defined areas in this market. And we continually see new and new, new methodologies and new spaces popping up as the science evolves. But we're also trying to pioneer as well indicators that help measure these more qualitative or sort of peripheral benefits, for example, like biodiversity and social outcomes. And there's some really great work being done in this space, you know, using proxies for indicators of biodiversity and things like that. What can you measure? Can you listen to the the sounds of the forest as an indicator of how much biodiversity is there, as an example, and trying to standardise that so that buyers and investors can make sensible decisions about where to put their money such that their impact is as high as possible. We're really seeing this conversation shift in that direction. FSC has been very important for that too. And Pina can tell us uh, this whole ecosystem services certification that some of the companies like Arauco has been doing for, for the last years, because this has helped us to try to measure a lot of other things. You know, Rhiannon was talking about water, Well, I was talking about biodiversity, but there are a lot of ecosystem services that they are not monetized today, but we hope that they can be also in the future. In, in, in the way now, you have the carbon and you had these add-ons, but maybe in the future you can also monetize those other benefits. And FSC has done a tremendous work helping companies to address those ecosystem services by this uh, certification, for example. Thank you, Juan, for, for giving me that perfect bridge over to Pina, because Pina, I'd like to bring you into the conversation and maybe you can just pull us up in the helicopter a bit. You're the Climate Restoration Director at FSC, and I know that you're also extremely passionate about reforestation and restoration and the potential role of FSC in there, which is something that we actually haven't touched upon yet in this podcast. But maybe you can tell us a bit about what is FSC's approach to climate change, to restoration, and to actually looking into this whole market where we're boasting requirements or asks from all of the brands that we're working with too, who are FSC certified, and also from the forest owners. What are we doing already and what can we do? Yes, according to our vision up to 2050, that it's included in our updated global strategy, we want to achieve and recognize the true value of forests. And that means that we want forest-based solutions, including sustainable forest management, all the tangible products that are produced, conservation of biodiversity and restoration of forests in the forefront of the climate agenda. 
And as Juan mentioned before, the ecosystem services procedure is one of the tools that we have developed to be able to demonstrate this. And now we are in the process of reviewing the ecosystem services procedure to add these social and cultural values that are relevant as well, because as well, the world is now trending to be able to demonstrate these impacts on the ground. And we have a tool to make that happen. Mm -hmm. What are we doing more specifically? We believe that FSC's role is focused on two of our biggest values and strengths. One is, of course, our long-term experience promoting sustainable forestry and, and the standard for sustainable forestry that has been applied for more than 28 years all over the globe. But the second very important value is our unique member-driven governance structure that allows us to facilitate these connections and the dialogue of stakeholders from different sectors to co-create and deliver new climate solutions. In that sense, our approach is to co-create these solutions in engagement and collaboration with key partners mm -hmm. in order to leverage and promote higher investments from the public and private climate initiatives. There has also been a strong focus in this interview about the importance of climate finance. So one of our latest and recent initiatives is our engagement and participation in the sustainable finance world. Mm -hmm. As an example, we are now observers of the Green Bond Principles, which is one of the biggest financial platforms that engage more than 600 financial institutions all over the world to develop together best practices, lessons, and exchange experiences on demonstrating how their investments are achieving sustainability goals. And in that sense, we are positioning the ecosystem services procedure as one of the ways where companies and banks and other financial institutions can use to demonstrate the positive impacts they create on their investments. Does that mean that FSC is looking into actually being able to monetize and sell carbon credits? We are partnering with credible market partners that deliver carbon credits, but not only carbon credits. There is also a trend uh, and a big interest from different sectors on a future market for biodiversity credits, for example, and water credits. So we believe that we have, as the ecosystem services procedure and the upcoming restoration toolbox, credible and high integrity solutions that can be used by these sectors and these markets to be able to demonstrate these co-benefits or social and environmental benefits that should come together also with carbon projects. We understand in FSC the importance of engaging with credible and important global platforms. And at this stage in the world, the climate dialogue is not only a corporate dialogue. It's a dialogue that incorporates governments, other NGOs, stakeholders, indigenous peoples, smallholders, uh, forest users, project developers such as South Pole investors. So I think we are in, in this unique position to make this dialogue happen, but we're also connecting to global platforms such as the Forest Positive Coalition, which is a coalition of companies and NGOs setting up also 
net zero emission targets, best practices to achieve that, the value change initiative, also another initiative connected to the corporate world, the United Nations Fashion Charter, which is defining how fashion and apparel companies should develop their climate reduction targets. So through participating in these platforms and engaging with all these companies and other sectors, we are also supporting the forest managers to get more access to the markets. So before we end, I'd like to hear from all four of you. How do you envision the future of this very broad topic? And I know that we touched on a lot of different things, but how do you envision the future of this? How critical will it be for us to enable uh, climate investments? What kind of alliances will we need? How can we get this to scale? Juan Carlos, maybe if we start with you. Yeah, so it's a very tough question because, you know, uh, by definition to know the future, it's impossible. And I have been already in the market back in 2009, 2010, 2011. It felt like a, a déjà vu where a lot of, of excitement was there and then, you know, everything collapsed. But I think that the situation is, is different because the impacts of, of climate change are more, are more, you know, are very present, right? Very, very present. And, and I feel that the financial community is feeling the cold as well. And I, I believe that uh, there's, there's a trend. So I think the future can be grasped by some tendencies. Um, one will be the amount of risk capital that is being put in, in front into new ventures. And Sherwood, it's, it's a little bit an example because to fundraise, I have been working in finance for a while, and to fundraise 500 million for nature-based solutions a few years ago was impossible. I would say that in this climate finance, specifically nature-based solutions sector, you know, we have good reasons to be optimistic. And nevertheless, I, I'm very worried because of, of the over-complexification of these standards, meaning the current standards, the discussions about the adjustments to be done between a country, what a company wants, what the NGO wants, what the, the university wants, and it's, you know, it's getting very complicated. And this is hurting the actual activities in the ground because I understand that we want integrity, it's all we want, but we need to be tolerant for a margin of error because we are in a crisis. And in, in a crisis, we cannot only focus in details. We need to keep the big picture. And restoring land is key. Managing forests is key. And there are some standards and the overclassification by NGOs sometimes that have good intentions but are putting barriers. I think it will hurt the overall investment what we need because we need to pass from a few millions to a few billions, why not trillions per year investment in nature. So I believe that it's important to keep the big picture. I believe that the, the FSC is doing a great job by providing, you know, a very broad guidelines for forest management. And we need to have then, I would say, somehow in the nature-based solution space and climate finance, I think they will evolve in that way because we need to have governance at the standard levels. We need to have participation of different actors, government, NGOs, scientific operators. I don't think that's happening at the carbon level and that can hurt the overall sector. Rhiannon, 
What do you envision for the future? First and foremost, it's the forest owners and the forest managers that know best. They know their land, they know their tree species, they know their local context and the sort of sustainable practices that they can and want to implement. So we need to find ways to reach them. It's also their, themselves and their local communities that stand to benefit from any of the other benefits that come along from transitioning to sustainable practice. So for us, it's really important that we find and form alliances with the likes of FSC who connect us with foresters that are already doing good for both their industry and the planet so that we can help drive that sustainable finance to the right place and do it at scale. I think beyond that, we need to engage the financial community. We can do that through a number of ways. Some of that will involve the development of indicators and uh, methodologies and standards that allow them to make uh, sensible financial decisions for where they want to put their finance for maximum impact. And we also need to create models that they can enter into that facilitate and cater for that sustainable transition. So getting them comfortable with the ideas of new revenue streams like carbon it might even extend to insurance products that cater specifically to things like carbon and the risks, uh, both you know, physical risks that might happen in a forest that might impact those revenue streams, for example. And last but not least, we also need to look at this digital transition because I think we are in a climate crisis and need to reach some economies of scale very fast. Actually, there's a lot of advancements that have been done towards the end of remote sensing and being able to sort of do a lot more on a lot larger scale through digital innovations that don't require as much on the ground laborious data collection. So I think we need to work on all three of these partnerships to access the foresters, to enable and engage the financial community and also drive innovation in these digital spaces as well. Sounds like a perfect bridge to you, Juan, and everything that you were talking about earlier. How do you envision the future? Yeah, so those three points are key points. I see also that the climate crisis is not going down. So the space is to grow these markets in the future, of course, because the planet is, is pressured. We need climate action now. And in that sense, I see only opportunities. FSC's job has been always to encourage the good forest management. And they have done it by opening markets, okay, for wood products that have this certification. So maybe a similar mechanism can be done also for the ecosystem services. We were talking before, not only for carbon, okay? I, I know that this is complex, this is difficult, but as uh, Rhiannon was saying, when, when you have more data, when you have more technology, some of these issues are not that difficult to measure anymore. I envision that these things will be able to be measured in the future, and, and that brings a tremendous opportunity. And let me say a last thing. I believe that it's very complex, especially for small and medium-sized organizations, to be able to participate in this market. So I also think that as big companies, we have a, a big responsibility of helping those smaller and medium-sized landowners and other companies to get there where they can measure and they can also be part of the system. Pina, what do we need to do to make it happen? Even if we all know the importance of forests to reduce carbon emissions, greenhouse gas, gases emissions, for example, the level of financial support 
to deliver nature-based solutions still has huge gaps worldwide. For example, in the last report on finance for nature, it is calculated that there is a deficit and a financing gap of 4.1 trillion US dollars to be reached by 2050 on investments in these nature-based solutions, including forests. And the current investments are only reaching about 130 billion US dollars a year. And that basically, basically funding is coming from public sources. So even that there is a huge strength of the corporate sector and the financial sector and companies like South Pole and the Sherwood Company to facilitate those investments, we still need to do a lot of work to position forests, but also to make civil society and organizations understand that forests are key to address climate change and support climate change adaptation and mitigation. Is FSC doing something specific to help instrument that, to make that change happen? Yes, we have three key strategic objectives connected to that vision. One is to scale up tools, mechanisms and policies that we deliver to provide and leverage these solutions. An example of that is the new restoration toolbox that we are co-creating with other partners connected to the restoration ambition worldwide. The second strategic objective is that we engage and partner with high integrity and credible partners and institutions to deliver the solutions. So the engagement and partnership part of the work is, is relevant and critical. And the third one is that we enable the stakeholder dialogues and also the participation of indigenous peoples, smallholders, forest managers in the dialogues to make these solutions accessible to all. Uh, And of course, with a strong focus in the places that have uh, higher sensitivity to climate change adaptation and mitigation and biodiversity loss, uh, such as the tropics. Just to end us off here, Pina, do you think we'll make it in time? The last report from the Intergovernmental Panel of Climate Change is very disturbing and really, really, really concerning about what is coming in the next three decades if we don't do something urgent. But we are definitely in the pathway to achieve that. We acknowledge that we are in a climate and biodiversity crisis. And I think that the tools that we're developing and the alliances that we are creating will contribute to achieve that. That concludes my conversation with an entire investment value chain from forest to product. I hope that their visions for the future become a reality and that FSC will become a key partner in building alliances and solutions for mitigating climate change and biodiversity loss in time, and that we will start seeing a lot of FSC certified restoration projects. If you want to learn more about this topic and engage in the debate, I strongly encourage you to register for our General Assembly and participate either in person or virtually. You can see much more on that and register at ga.fsc.org. That was ga.fsc.org. And if you don't want to take my word for it, maybe this quote from one of our members from the Economic Chamber, or more specifically from Ralph Smith-Learman from Mondestil Plata, will convince you. The General Assembly is one of those very important moments in the life of the organization. 
where the FSC membership gathers to exchange, learn, inspire, and get inspired, and give high-level direction. We learn where we are on the global agenda. Most of all, we learn from each other's perspectives across chambers, south and north, and from all regions. At the end of the day, members and staff are in FSC for diverse reasons and often different needs. But when we get together and see each other's faces, meet old and new friends, hug or shake hands after now five years since the last GA, we realize how much we actually do share. We discover in FSC a common aspiration to do good. So let's take every opportunity to celebrate FSC's wins, the difference we make in a much challenged world the history of values we inherit and how we need to adapt and change into the future to increase our relevance, our outreach, and widen our global impact for the next generations, for Mother Nature and our forests, for our people. The General Assembly is an outstanding opportunity to live and feel this unique organization. As mentioned in the beginning, this was the first of three episodes. In the next two episodes, we will be diving deep into the role of people, or more specifically into family forests, communities, workers and indigenous people in transforming forests. And we will be looking at how we can demonstrate the true value forests can give as we work as a global community to deliver on the sustainable development goals. So stay tuned to learn much more about the event and the important topics to be discussed and found solutions for at the General Assembly. This episode was brought to you by our top General Assembly sponsors, SIG and Aroco. A sincere thank you from FSC for the support in making this important democratic event happen. Remember to subscribe to this podcast series, Forest for the Future, if you want to get notified of new episodes. You can also always get in touch with me on podcast at fsc.org. I am Lova Worm, and this was Forest for the Future. <laughs>